0: In his Confessions, Augustine describes how he acquired Latin but struggled with and came to despise Greek. And he asks, why then did I despise the Greek works which as a youngster I studied? Even now my exploring is left unsatisfied." Referring to Greek as a foreign language, that's what he thought of it. He says, certainly the difficulty, the difficulty of entirely learning that foreign language, as it were, sprinkles bitterness into all the sweetness of the Greek fable stories. Later, he contrasts language acquisition in Latin and Greek. He says, I, of course, didn't know Latin when I was an infant. Nevertheless, it's worth noticing that I learned without pain and torture, For between my charming nurses and laughing jokers and happy playmates, I learned truly, without the urge to endure punishment. When my heart urged me to give birth to its own desires, which wouldn't have even been the case unless I had learned other words, not from those teaching grammar, but from those speaking, I also brought forth in speech everything I desired in their hearing. Harhoff asked about this in 1920. said, what then exactly was wrong with the teaching of the second language for Augustine. He concluded that partly, it undoubtedly was that stupid concentration on the dry bones of grammar which persists up to the present day in the teaching of a strange language. But there was a deeper cause. Augustine gets to the root of the matter when he says that it was unnaturalness. For him, attempting to learn a language via grammar and rules is unnatural. Unnatural. Listening, speaking, joking, etc. make learning a language natural. The word natural has become something of a synonym with living, and it's the matter of living languages or living language approaches that I've been tasked with addressing. And I think it helpful to begin by clarifying the moniker living language. Historical precedent is important for it provides us with context, and so I begin there. The first description of language as living appeared in 1540 CE. Alessandro Chitolini in his Litera in Defesa, della lingua vogare contrasted la latina e morta, dead Latin, with la vogare e viva Italia, the living Italian vernacular. It's significant to discussion, the discussion that at that time, debates were in full swing between two schools of thought, the classicists and the vernacularists. In the European context, a great number of vernacular, what we might call modern spoken languages, were garnering interest and vitiating the use of Greek and Latin. Resistant, the classicists were attempting to advance the argument that Latin should retain its place of prestige, not merely as an academic, but also as an international language. Yet, the vernacularists, challenged these views and one way to make their point was to distinguish between changing that is a productive image presaging linguistic notions of generative and stagnant languages so you have changing and stagnant languages italian was thus viewed as a new creation by a process of generatio out of the corruption of latin As a result, the generatio theory led to the idea of Latin as dead and the newly generated Italian as living. Interestingly, mercury, also known as quicksilver because of its silver color, was understood at the time as mobile, changing, moving, and living. And as such, it was contrasted with stagnant or dead water. And it was this, not the human body, That became a guiding metaphor of the times for dead and living language. In 1693, John Locke wrote, "...the Latin tongue would be easily taught the same way if his tutor, being constantly with the boy, would talk nothing else to him and make him answer still in the same language. But because French is a living language and to be used more in speaking, that should be learned first. Payne's dictum around the same time was that a youth will learn more of a living language in one year than of a dead language in seven. He said, too, that it's but seldom that the teacher knows much of it himself. The difficulty of learning the dead languages doesn't arise from any superior abstrusenesses in the languages themselves, but in their being dead. One of the first dictionary definitions of dead language from Webster, of course, which was given in 1831, was this. A language which is no longer spoken or in common use by people and known only in writers as the Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Interestingly, Webster, he doesn't give a definition for living language, but he does use that phrase four times throughout that dictionary. And we see that dead was associated with being written only, not spoken, and not productive or changing or growing. Living, that is productive, changing, and growing, was understood as both written and spoken. And it was only in the 18th century that the biological understanding of dead and living languages came into view. My analyses show that in 1800 CE, there were 144 extant uses of dead language in print, while there were 78 for living language. 200 years later, there were 2,342 for dead language and 991 for living. For the most part then, since 1800, there's been a consistent uptick in using these terms. In the 1900s, Hill said, The method of teaching living foreign languages in the United States has been stubbornly and radically wrong. The ear and the vocal organs are the means nature provides for language study. Americans have endeavored in vain to acquire living languages by the eye and from books. A book never taught anyone to speak any language, even his native tongue. Living languages must be learned from the lips of those who speak them with spontaneous ease. Hill's statement is good, but a bit too simplistic. As DeCoe says, a simplified historical outlook tends to categorize just a few noteworthy methods that are used to characterize then entire periods. Moreover, these methods are sometimes reduced to their bare bones without considering their own development and complexity. This, I think, is the case with where things stand today amongst Bible scholars and and teachers of ancient language pedagogy, operating in sort of all-or-nothing and either-or binaries. One either teaches with a grammar translation or a spoken approach. There's like nothing in between. The conversational approach is often viewed as less historically mature, while the grammar translation approach is often viewed as outdated. Both sides are wrong. It's too simplistic of an outlook on a complex matter. DeCoeh speaks more correctly of a third approach, which he calls the didactic approach. And he uses didactic in its positive educational sense. It's learner-focused, geared to efficiency, simplification, and facilitation. Also, it has strong attention to content systematization. These distinctions don't imply a strict separation between them, Many methods, in fact, mingle all three, and the balance and sequence of approaches are very much part of the systematization they pursue. When we look back to the past, we discover that from the beginning, this was the case. As Mackey has noted, however, much of the field of language method has become a matter of opinion rather than of fact. It's not surprising, he says, that feelings run high in these matters and that the very word method means so little and so much. Indeed, the reason for this, he goes on, lies in the state and organization of our knowledge of language and language learning. It lies in willful ignorance of what's been done and said and thought in the past. In the full version of this essay, which is more than quadruple the size of what I'm able to share here today, I examine language teaching and learning starting with Sumerian and Akkadian, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, and I also survey data up through the Renaissance. And the varied picture that emerges from the evidence is one of an ancient multi-sensory or multimodal pedagogical approach in which the teachers employed speaking, reading, writing, copying, composing, translating, and grammatical analysis. The master modeled these things, and the students imitated. Importantly, language education, although perhaps limited in resources throughout the ages, seemed rather well-rounded in each of those contexts. Moreover, curriculum existed in varying ways, and teachers were directly involved, and not insignificantly, elements of the Greco-Roman progymnasmata, or progymnasmata, that's how you say it, were nearly always present, even before the Greco-Roman era. Finally, the role of the teacher, again, can't be overlooked. Regardless of the scenario, a father teaching at home, teachers teaching in the place of fathers, or like situations, the teacher-student dynamic was ever-present in the process of language acquisition. I now want to draw attention to a couple of key voices on the topic of language teaching and learning in the time span from the Renaissance, (1300s) to about 1882, up to the era of reform, which is about 1882 to the early 1900s. And part of my aim is to reiterate that there were educators who employed holistic approaches that included at once the skills of reading, writing, speaking, grammar study, and translation. And additionally, I want to assert, as does Pym, that even in this period, there was basically, hear me on this, there was basically no such thing as grammar translation as single orthodoxy. Seifert, in his detailed study, finds that the label grammar translation arose from within the ranks of modern teachers, those using a communicative approach especially, to differentiate themselves and remain on top of the competition from the past, giving communicative language teaching power while actually robbing the grammar translation method of its more complex and not so easily summarized history. It's similar to Levine's assessment that even the eclectic approaches that come under the heading of communicative language teaching aren't natural, but derive from the particular historical trends and trajectories in language education of the last few hundred years, and perhaps from popular intuitive beliefs or beliefs based on anecdotal evidence, which themselves have historical roots that one could trace. This is substantiated at least partially, by the fact that in the era of reform and beyond, various fields of psychology, especially behaviorism, have heavily influenced language pedagogy. Near the end of the Renaissance, renowned author and educator Roger Asham rose to prominence. His book for schoolmasters, aptly titled The Scolamaster, or Schoolmaster, was built by Asham himself on the cover page as a, quote, perfect way to teach, understand, write, and speak Latin. Because working with the language is a text-based endeavor, Asham always requires the presence of a master teacher, even with a single student, something typical of 16th century education. Pym notes that during this period, grammar teaching, translation, speaking, and writing were all used. He says, there are actually very few textbooks that don't allow space for spoken exchange in addition to or alongside the written exercises. The learner was incited to discover grammar through contact with the language with translation exercises being used to introduce points of comparative grammar. The pedagogical progression in translation activities meant moving from simple to hard with various checks on acquisition along the way. Another one of the Renaissance's notable educators was Komensky, or in Latin, Comenius, who maybe some of you know. In his, work, in his work, communicative, or usage-based pedagogy, was often combined with grammar-based materials. In his Opera Didacta Omnia, or as it's come to be known, the great didactic, he provides 26 guiding principles for language teachers. And he asserts near the beginning that teaching the second language must be done with age or cognition-level appropriate materials, and as far as is possible, every foreign word must be linked to a concrete object. Using his approach, he contends that Latin can be learned in two years, Greek in one, and Hebrew in six months. (laughs) (laughs) For Comenius, part of the philosophy is that all languages are easier to learn by practice than from rules. His contention is that by hearing, reading, rereading, copying, imitating with hand and tongue, and doing all of these as frequently as is possible, will yield the greatest successes in the least amount of time. At the same time, he says, rules assist and strengthen the knowledge derived from practice. For him, the rules, whether encountered explicitly or implicitly, follow from language use rather than precede it. Given Cominius' approach, it's thus not necessarily uncommon to find adherence from the grammar translation camp and from the natural approach, both appealing to Cominius' work. And this in and of itself is very telling. It reveals an important discrepancy, namely that the account of grammar translation and communicative approaches, historically being diametrically opposed to one another, is little more than erroneous, revisionist history. Previously, I noted the presence of progymnasmatic elements in language pedagogy. The progymnasmata of antiquity were well-known and available to schoolmasters and schoolboys in European grammar schools throughout the 16th and 17th centuries in Latin translations. As to what this looked like, Clark says one thing common to all textbooks of Progymnosmata accounts for their success and hence their continued use at least through the 17th century. They all give patterns for the boys to follow. They present a graded series of exercises in writing and speaking themes uh, which proceed from the easy to the more difficult. They build each exercise on what the boys have learned from previous exercises. They repeat something from the previous exercises, yet each exercise adds something new. The schoolmasters who taught the classes and wrote, translated, or adapted the textbooks never took anything for granted except the teacher with the group of boys assembled for the purpose of learning to compose themes. It was in the 16th century, however, that grammars for foreign languages began to emerge. The typical textbook would have within it a short preface, a grammar section, idiomatic phrases, dialogues, and personal and commercial letters. Text might also contain a word list, proverbs, some text for reading, and other practice material. As McClelland notes, by the early 19th century then, the idea of learning foreign languages from a grammar book with accompanying graded exercises, including translation into and out of the language, was established. It was this that grew into what was later disparagingly called the grammar translation method. Regardless of its detractors, its intentions were laudable, says McClelland, to provide both a grammatical foundation and appropriate targeted exercises to allow learners to practice applying the rules as they learnt them step by step. It seems that for me, and for McClelland too, the dichotomy between grammar, translation, grammar, translation, and communication within the language teaching and learning process isn't so easy to parse out. The actual history is, as she says, less simplified than the lay view that in the imprecisely defined old days, language teaching was all about grammar and translation, but nowadays things are better and people learn to speak the language. What's closer the reality is the fact that grammar and translation didn't dominate all language teaching until the 20th century nor was it a new idea to pay attention to the spoken language that had been around and nearly every stage from sumerian on excepting later modern educators who made it a point to draw lines in the sand these approaches coexisted and were made use of to suit the purposes of educators and students The period of time when lines began to be distinctly drawn in the sand, although not by all, was the period of reform, 1882 to about 1902. It should be stated here that at that time, education had moved predominantly to a school model, and although tutors were still used, the uh, one-on-one master-apprentice model ultimately became less prominent. Influences on education, such as the Industrial Revolution, we're certainly part of the reason for this. Also, uh, near the end of the 17th century and up through the 19th, attention was shifting away from rhetorical education in general, and as a result, the progymnazmata also fell into a sharp decline. Thus, the teaching-learning enterprise began to look very different than it had in the past. With regard to language teaching and learning, the uh, the influences of the science of psychology were gaining interest and on occasion drawing insights, as I said earlier, from behaviorism which paid great attention to habit formation as well as the developmental stages of people in general and children in particular. In 1853, some 30 years before the reform movement is said to have officially started, Claude Marcel published a work titled Language as a Means of Mental Culture and International Communication. Marcel, a prominent figure of the reform movement, promoted the idea that prior to learning any of the classical languages, modern languages must first be learned. Indeed, the entire enterprise of learning the classical languages is that it'll serve to benefit the students' abilities in their native tongue. Marcel says of the classical languages, these should be studied not for their own sake, not as an end, but as a means and under a rational system. They may be most useful auxiliaries to mental discipline and improvement in the native tongue without interfering with the departments of education, the other departments of education. Marcel contends that the amount of time spent teaching the languages in classical schools is disturbing. Indeed, he, he says, he who spends six years in teaching what can be learned in three robs his pupil of so much previous time. Mackey argues that for Marcel, the focus was on teaching language first through comprehension of texts, through abundant listening, then through the reading of simple and familiar material, followed later by speaking and then writing. Grammar would be learned inductively along the way, and then at a later stage could be reviewed deductively if desired. What's perhaps most significant about Marcel's approach is that it was text-oriented. This meant that for learners, the entryway into the foreign language was through reading. This he called a rational method and later became known as the reading-first method. The four branches of his approach were to understand the reading and the spoken language, to speak, to understand the written language, and to write. Another figure, Francois Gouin, just prior to the rise of the reform movement, composed a book in 1880 titled The Art of Teaching and Studying Language. His retelling of his frequent attempts to learn a foreign language are, although depressing, likely familiar to many students of ancient biblical languages. He asks... Are ten years of one's life under ten teachers necessary to learn a language like Latin? The resounding answer, of course, is no. He says, whether it be acknowledged or not, there is for each language a definite foundation, a first footing upon which is based all its ulterior developments, literary or otherwise. This foundation is no more dead in Latin than in German. To teach it, it's necessary to speak Latin as one would speak German. Having essentially thrown his arms up in defeat after attempting numerous learning techniques, including exerting the energy to memorize a foreign dictionary and failing, he had a eureka moment that led him to what became known as his series approach. For when every event that happened within a series, Uh, for, For him, every event happened in a series which invites the repetitive use of nouns and verbs and other terms while also introducing some new vocabulary. For example, scene one would repeat lots of nouns but offer new verb forms. The maid takes hold of the pail by the handle. The maid lifts up the pail. The maid goes across the kitchen. The maid opens the door, and so on and so forth. His approach was widely adopted and became popular in schools. But as with everything in the scholarly world, it had its critics, even from within the, his own reform movement. Henry Sweet, for instance, another prominent voice in this era who's certainly worth reading, remarked that the series method may in itself be a sound principle, but it's too limited in its application to form even the basis of a fully developed method. As Sweet saw it, in its present form, the Gwyn method is incapable of teaching the pupil to say, I think so, or, I'd rather not do it, or indeed to express anything that falls under the categories of emotion or intellect. Moreover, he concluded that some of the series, such as that which gives a detailed description of opening and shutting a door, are as uninteresting as they are useless. Regarding grammar, Gwynne desired that it be learned both implicitly and explicitly. Thus, he says, in itself, the grammatical teaching is necessary. But such as is given in the schools of today has proved useless, nay, even harmful for the acquisition and the practice of languages. Conclusion, we mustn't abolish the teaching of grammar, we must reform it. The final individual to bring into view here is Wilhelm Vietor, often described as the catalyst for the reform movement. In 1882, he penned an anonymous pamphlet titled Language Teaching Must Start Afresh. In it, he railed against overburdening students with homework and unnecessary academic exercises. These he viewed as damaging and harmful. He says that when a student begins with grammatical rules, nothing that the language has to offer later on, reading in particular, can undo or make up for the damage that's already been done. It's very unclear what purpose reading the text is supposed to fulfill in foreign language teaching except to exemplify the grammatical rules again. The assertion that a teacher who begins with grammatical rules will void any desire a student initially had to read the text is quite striking. Not surprisingly, like Marcel, Vietor asserted that in order to learn a dead language, it's first beneficial to think in other languages than our own and know what language really is. In other words, we must have a sound acquaintance with living tongues. This preparatory stage not only sets students up to succeed, but also teachers. He says, if we can bring our pupils to think and express themselves in the foreign language, in addition to their mother tongue, we shall have accomplished what we set out to do. The teacher shall never lose sight of the two basic aims, comprehension and text production or reproduction. For Vietor, as we've intimated already, grammar grows naturally out of reading the text themselves. Teachers should, at regular intervals, he says, make it a point to revise text with a specific grammar point in mind and present the results of this study systematically alongside earlier work so that the grammar builds up over the course of time. Also, it goes without saying that the foreign language should always be spoken in class. This also goes for teaching the classical languages, he says. In something of a prophetic statement concerning teaching biblical languages today, perceptively he concluded that the more reluctant the ancient or classical language teaching profession is to follow this precept of speaking in class, the more doubtful their claim to a place is in the schools at all. From the above overview, which is purposefully and necessarily abbreviated, there are several items worth noting. First, the role of the text in in the language teaching and learning process is significant. While it may have a different place within some of the methods, it's always present. Moreover, it's always used in engagement with speaking. Alongside reading and speaking come activities such as writing, using gestures, looking at pictures, etc., Orderliness and sequentiality are important as well. And another item that we pick up in this era is emphasis on the role of culture in language learning. Finally, we see that grammar is not viewed as the enemy per se, but that its appearance at the appropriate stage in the process has to be considered. If it's introduced too soon or out of order, it can be damaging. On this topic, too, grammar should be taught and learned inductively first and, as such, precede any deductive explanations. When seen in this view, understanding grammar, even deductive grammar, as the enemy is simply problematic and an unfair reading of the data. A well-rounded, holistic approach makes use of listening, reading, writing, speaking, grammar study, and translating on the heels of the reform movement came the modern world with new scientific approaches. And I begin with Walter Ripman, a noted voice among the reformers and beyond. He was deeply interested in language, attested both by his job within the educational system and his publications on teaching languages like Latin, English, French, German, and Italian. In his book, Hints on Teaching French, he mentions the aims of his pedagogy. He says, our pupils' object in learning a modern language is, in the first place, that they may understand, speak, and write it. A large part of his practice focused on associating images with objects, especially early on, to aid in language acquisition. He also was keen on aligning content with age development. As McClellan notes, for Ripman, the spoken language was a means to a higher end. At the fore of his new first German book, he wrote a word to learners. What I want you to learn first is to think in this foreign language until it almost ceases to be foreign. Don't be afraid to speak in class, for the more you do so, the sooner you'll be able to read. So Ripman views speaking as a type of cognitive stepping stone toward the end goal of reading. Or as McClellan puts it, giving space to the spoken language didn't mean conversation was the sole goal. It was a stage on the way to be able to read. First simple passages, but ultimately literature. In some cases, although certainly not all, it became known as the direct method and was known in large part for discouraging learners from using the mother tongue, engaging in translation, and being concerned with formal grammatical rules and terminology. His model was text-centered, which meant reading was the end goal. He also promoted speaking as a means to an end, not an end in and of itself. Listening was also an important factor, but he wasn't concerned with translation or formal grammar training. Notably, this is really important, Ripman was one of the first to begin drawing lines in the sand on this matter. And as the 20th century progressed, this became more and more of a trend, drawing these lines in the sand, and it often led to educators choosing one camp, one side, and disparaging the other. And it was out of this that additional methods began to arise, which brings us to the natural method, also known as the nature method, here, meaning is derived inferentially, and there's no use for the first language, the native language. There's no use for translation, at least early on. There's no use for meta-language and grammatical terminology. It's not to say there's no place for grammar at all. Rather, it's used in later stages and often referenced for corrective purposes. In the natural method, the preferred learning order is listening, speaking, graded reading, writing, and then grammar. Grammar. This was popularized by Marcel earlier, who placed great emphasis on being able to think in the language. Gategno, too, desired that, desired that students be able to think in the language, but as the progenitor of the silent way methodology, his route of getting students there was very different. For Gattegno, it was important that a teacher remain almost silent, giving the students the time and space necessary to practice the language. I know a lot of students who would love for that principle to be in place. But what it did was place the onus of learning squarely on the students' shoulders. They gained an awareness of the language through their mistakes, corrected by the teacher mostly and mainly through silence and gestures. The learners' exploration of the language through use is, in the silent way, a trait common to a number of methods of this day, albeit in, a, in very different ways. Suggestopedia was another method. It was developed by a Bulgarian psychologist and used in the public school system there for a long time. It was influenced by the direct method. Here, the unconscious was tapped by certain yoga techniques of physical and mental relaxation. And in addition to these, the use of music, memorization, speaking, games, storytelling, sketches, plays, reading, grammar, translation, they're all used within this method. The emphasis on embodiment... Uh, interaction, engaging the senses, relief from foreign language anxiety, and the use of basically all means available are elements that rose to prominence through the 19th and 20th centuries. Another insight that came to the fore, especially by Postovsky, was that comprehending a foreign language, another important point, comprehending a foreign language is easier than producing it. This means that attempts at speaking and composing should be delayed until listening and comprehending have been practiced. As Crystal says, a basic receptive competence is established, and this is used as the foundation for work involving retrieval skills. It was known as the delayed oral practice method, or the comprehension approach. Thinking in the target language is inherent to most of the methods in this era. Another method that focused on listening was the audiolingual method, which was also known as the aural-oral method. It was used in the 1930s and 40s by soldiers fighting in World War II who traveled to foreign lands and needed to acquire basic conversational skills in a short amount of time. High-frequency vocabulary and phrases were used from the start, along with the repetition of common structures. Listening and speaking were foundational for fluency. Reading, writing, and grammatical study came later, but the latter received very little attention overall. One of the most popular methods, heralded especially by Asher, was the total physical response and storytelling method. Like the audiolingual method, much of the focus was on the importance of aural comprehension in the early months of learning. Again, as Crystal notes, the name derives from the emphasis on the actions that learners make when given simple commands. More advanced language is introduced by building up chains of actions using either spoken or written commands. Asher and other advocates purposefully front-load listening. Asher says, the first element is that listening skill is in far in advance of speaking. Listening precedes speaking. It may be that listening comprehension maps the blueprint for the future acquisition of speaking. Quite different than this is the grammar translation method, known early on as the Prussian method. Here, the goal is a meticulous meticulous analysis of the written language in which translation exercises, reading comprehension, and the written imitation of text play a primary role. In most grammar translation classrooms, there's usually no listening, no speaking, no storytelling in the target language. While comprehension is a component, the additional or foreign language is always filtered through the first language. While Richards and Rogers assert that it's a method for which there is no theory... It continues to be used because it doesn't require an educator to be a fluent speaker. And both classroom and curriculum variables are easy to control. Pym advocates a method that he calls communicative translation. For him, translation is always a communicative activity. And he, he asserts then that translation is always communication. So he wants the distinction between spoken translation or interpreting and written translation, translation to be done away with it's not useful learners should be speaking and writing all the way through since speaking is the primary situation all written translation should begin from spoken translation success is judged by way of communication not just equivalence this pedagogy uses then both spoken and written modes which brings us to the eclective or the active method this might be viewed as something of a compromise method, that is, a compromise between the direct method and something akin to the grammar translation method. It's one of the most popular methods at the moment because it seeks to balance the workload between the teacher and student. Language skills are introduced in the following order, speaking, writing, understanding, and reading. Activities can include oral practice, reading aloud, questions and answers, along with translation, some deductive grammar, and some audio-visual aids. Archibald states that recent trends in second language pedagogy have tended to downplay the idea that a single method of instruction will work for all people. Currently, teachers tend to adopt an eclectic approach to second language instruction. What this means is that a variety of methods and approaches are utilized. Moreover, as Richards and Rogers note, changes in language teaching methods throughout history have reflected recognition of changes in the kind of proficiency learners need such as a move toward oral proficiency rather than reading comprehension as the goal of language study. Thus, the kind of proficiency desired and needed by the student goes a long way in shaping the teaching approach. Teachers of ancient languages must ask what kind of proficiency is desired and needed. Personally, I resist a pat answer on this because educational circumstances are fluid and ever-changing. Even for those who might advocate this position, there has to be some recognition that teachers will necessarily have to make their own adaptations, just have to. So, openness to variability and a posture of humility, starting with myself, I think can go a long way. I'm learning that. I now want to mention one more figure Hans Orberg. I mention Orberg because his work could be something of a guiding light for those of us who teach biblical languages and create and use biblical languages. Orberg's method, based on Jensen's, is at home within the natural method, but because of certain nuances, is known as the contextual induction method. This underlies the Lingua Latina series, which also has uh, recorded readings of, by Orberg himself. Orberg asserts that his approach rationally accelerates the learning process without compromising the natural stages of learning. The aim is to make every sentence presented to students immediately intelligible, per se, or self-explanatory by grading and organizing the introduction of vocabulary and grammar. Orberg notes that words and grammatical forms only make sense in context, and therefore should be learned in context. Thus, repetition is a major facet of his series, and the strategy is that in every chapter, the new words introduced be in proportion no greater than one to every 25 to 30 words already learned. And Brown and Moraglia assert that with this lexical foundation, the student will be able to read most works of Latin literature with relative ease. Indeed, one of the best results of using Orberg's works with students is that little effort or time must be exerted in the process. At this point, I want to highlight one more item. McClellan has aptly noted that hand-in-hand with the view formulated in the 1960s that the goal of language teaching was communication came the tendency to conceptualize communication as consisting of skills. This is, of course, anything but new. Indeed, Quintilian saw uh, teaching as requiring the interrelation of four activities, reading, writing, speaking, and listening. No one was more important than the other's. Indeed, these four skills have played a major role in shaping language teaching and learning across time. Crystal says, In the long search for the best way of teaching a foreign language, hundreds of different approaches or methods have been devised. Ambitious claims are often made for a new teaching method, but none has yet shown to be intrinsically superior. For language teachers, this has caused a present-day shift where the contemporary attitude is flexible and utilitarian. It's recognized that there are several ways of reaching the goal of foreign foreign language competence and that teachers need to be aware of a range of methods in order to find the one most appropriate to the learner's needs and circumstances and to the objectives of the course. When I was a student, I often questioned the payoff of learning Greek. At times, it seemed aloof and out there, something reserved for the intellectually and or spiritually elite. As a Greek educator now, I have suspicions that some quite like and prefer it that way. I have, with much regret, seen too many colleagues post on social media examples of how they've scared or terrified their Greek students with quizzes, tests, and homework, etc., at one point, I even began creating an archive with such examples. It got so depressing that I stopped. <laughs> True story. When I was a student, Greek mostly seemed irrelevant, except to those teaching, and, teaching it and writing grammar books. It was a recurring question, what use is there for Greek? The inquiry concerning Greek's relevance is, I think, one that educators have to take seriously. From a fiduciary or economic standpoint, academic institutions are certainly listening. As we all know, enrollment in biblical language courses is across the board in decline. While there may be a few institutions that occasionally buck the trend, it's the norm. So rather than rushing to defend the value of the existence of our language courses, maybe those of us who are educators could take a cue from those handling the administrative duties at our schools and stop, listen, and make some reconsiderations. We need not be like the Stoic philosophers whose views Cicero summarizes in his Pro Morena. The philosopher surmises nothing, repents of nothing, is never wrong, and never changes his opinion. We need not be described with a similar epithet. The Koine Greek teacher surmises nothing, repents of nothing, is never wrong, and never changes his opinion. We're all apologists the scholars for our pet views. We're keen to defend what we've built a career researching and publishing on. Some of us have the linguistic hills that we're willing to die on, that we're willing to stake our names on. We deliver our conference papers with vigor and marshal troops in the form of graduate and postgraduate students to carry on our views. Repent? <laughs> Be wrong? Change an opinion? Despite the fact that we claim to value the scientific method, sometimes our blind spot with regard to it is not in the research itself, but in our own dispositions. We must listen. As teachers, our constituents are speaking with their mouths, their money, and their feet. If students refuse to enroll in Institution A because they feel they're wasting money on irrelevant language courses, the school loses money. Institution B recognizes this, and in order to stay in business, they remove the language requirement and bring those wayward students in. Institution A then finally notices and they begin reconsidering, eventually following suit. The constituents have taken control of the market and shaped it to their own liking, leaving us dead on our ink-covered hills, bodies draped in flags that read perfect tense, pronunciation, pedagogy, and the like. I'm not, of course, of the mindset or saying that digging our hills in and engaging in challenging research isn't a worthy endeavor. It is, absolutely it is. I am, however, attempting to draw our attention to the fact that we, the educators, are part of what is contributing to making ourselves irrelevant. It's a hard truth. It is. But the numbers tell an important story and they don't lie. Let's consider the data from the Modern Language Society as I end here with regard to both ancient Greek and biblical Hebrew. For the latter... Biblical Hebrew, the statistics from 2002 to 16 should give us pause, should worry us. In 2002, there were 14,183 students enrolled across biblic- in Biblical Hebrew courses across the nation. Four years later, it dropped to 14,137. Three years later, 13,764. 2013, uh, it dropped to 12,596. And in 2016, 9,587. In a 14-year span from 2002 to 16, enrollment in biblical Hebrew saw a national decrease to the tune of 4,596 students, a 32% decrease and shows no signs of waning. Ancient Greek. In 2006, there were 22,842 students enrolled in Ancient Greek nationwide. In 2009, it dropped to 21,515. By 2013, 16,961. In 2016, 13,264. It's an end result decrease of nearly 10,000 students, 9,578 9, to be exact, which is right at 42%. Beyond the fact that it's a greater drop than with Hebrew, what else is significant is that it happened over a shorter period of time. Across the board, enrollment in ancient language classes is fast declining. There's no one reason for it but I think our pedagogy may be part of the problem. These days, for me, pedagogy is one of my hills. My motivation, I believe, is well-placed. I want students to enroll in Greek classes, embrace the language, study, and use it. Perhaps we're too far in and the trend can't be turned, but I'm of the mindset that if we don't try, we've failed our field, our students, and ourselves. I think it can be reversed. I think Greek enrollment can take an upward swing, be revitalized. And I think that pedagogy may be the place to start. Current Western culture, in the wake of postmodern's emphasis on experience, seems to be enjoying a renaissance of sorts with regard to dynamics between the body and experience. Could it be the case that considering a more embodied and performative and holistic approach would bode well for our cause? From my perspective, it would. To accomplish this, we'll have to work hard, take some risks. And, at present, we'll need to be open to forging a middle ground between the conversational folks and the grammar translation approach folks. We may also have to require future generations of biblical language teachers to earn degrees in linguistics, perhaps with a focus on language acquisition, and push to have linguistics courses as part of our college, Bible college, university, and seminary curricula. I've repeatedly heard it said that the field of biblical studies is consistently a decade or two behind advances in the sciences, including linguistics and language teaching and learning. It may only be anecdotal, but it's probably not far from being true. It may be worse. We have to do better. In the words of Howatt and Widowson, when it comes to writing a history of some subject, it's always tempting to prick the balloon of contemporary self-satisfaction by demonstrating that what's been taken as evidence of progress in our time has in fact all been done before. I've succumbed to that temptation here, but I believe for a good and just cause to remind us that as Bible scholars and teachers of ancient languages, we have a rich history. We need to know it. And in choosing to embrace that past, we also choose not to embrace the divisive tale commonly spun that is built on anachronism and framed by a lust for being the right approach. In that vein, at the very least, I hope that advocates of various methods can entertain the notion that those with a different pedagogy aren't enemies but colleagues, aren't naive but using the means available to them, and aren't outdated or outmoded but developing in their own thought, praxis, and pedagogy.